Hello, readers. Natasha Lance Rogoff is an award-winning TV producer and documentary filmmaker. That includes serving as the lead producer for the Russian adaptation of Sesame Street, which she has just written a book about. It's called Muppets in Moscow, the unexpected crazy true story of making Sesame Street in Russia. And how about this? This book even has its own trailer. is to create a program that has never existed here before, which introduces children into the world of learning in a very joyful way and makes them understand that they can achieve anything that they want to in the future. something let them share not terminator not rambo which is now the case but sesame street natasha thank you so much for the time how you doing today i'm doing great it's great to be here talking to you trey it's my pleasure, and this is a fascinating story that you tell about uh, really taking the idea of Sesame Street, which had been around for decades, and trying to create a product that was suitable for Russian children just after the breakup of the Soviet Union. I guess my first question for you, Natasha, is why did Sesame Street execs ask you to bring this great show to Russia? I, I I mean, this is something I've asked myself for the past 30 years, but I'm absolutely thrilled that they did because it was so different from uh, anything else I had ever done in my life. And uh, I had I had already been working in the Soviet Union for 10 years before uh, two executives from uh, Sesame Workshop, which was called Children's Television Workshop at the time came to a screening of a documentary film that I had just finished um, and it aired on PBS and also predicted the coup of 1991. So it was on the same night of the coup when the Soviet empire collapsed. And it's a very dark film. So, <laughs> you know, I had embedded with uh, conservative fascists for two years, the same people that tried to um, take over the government from Gorbachev at that time. Hmm. Uh, and it's ironic now because one of the people that uh, was involved in uh, crushing the demonstration after um, <clears throat> after the, uh, the protests erupted is the same um, military guy in charge of the war in Ukraine right now. Oh, wow. And yeah, and he had served six years in prison after the 1991 demonstrations. When I saw that, I was just like, 
okay, this is this is horrific and surreal, you know, it, it just how history repeats itself. But um, at the time, I, uh, you know, these two executives came up and they were very charming. And I, I said to them, uh, they said, could you help us in, in um, bring Sesame Street to Russia? We've been trying for a couple of years and they had uh, bipartisan support for the project, not, not um, uh, appropriated funds, but a keen interest from the Congress to create a Russian version of Sesame Street so that the Muppets would be ambassadors to, you know, bringing over idealistic values about tolerance and provide skills to children um, that they would need in order to thrive in an, uh, a more open and uh, markets oriented society. So I asked, uh, this was Gary Nell who actually wrote the foreword to my book who became the CEO of Sesame Street, a wonderful, wonderful person and uh, very charming. And he said, uh, um, you know, uh, well, why don't you just talk to us? We, uh, you know, you can't say no to Elmo, can you? Hmm. And and I was in, I was, you know, although I thought it was nuts, like the, I, I was familiar with Russian comedy and, you know, kind of couldn't see the lighthearted, you know, happy-go-lucky Muppets interacting with the pessimistic, angst-ridden, uh, you know, Russian Muppets that would come to exist in the future. Neither, could, original, a, yeah. neither could a lot of Russians as you were trying to float the idea in the beginning. <laughs> that, is, that is very true, yes. Uh, but I, I, you know, there was something about it that was so intriguing. And, and I did not grow up on Sesame Street because I was born, uh, you know, at, it aired in 1969, I think. And so I, I was already nine. Uh, but I was familiar with it, as everybody was in America. And I thought, this is kind of intriguing. You know, maybe, maybe, maybe this could, you know, take hold there. And, and I was also aware that there wasn't that much for children at that time. The government really didn't have the money to support production. The film studios were black, you know, great, giant, mammoth film studios that had produced uh, the, you know, world-renowned films uh, for the past 70 years. Well, not 70, but, you know, yeah, I guess they started in 1920. Uh, Eisenstein, you know, Potemkin, all these, you know, great films. And um, I just thought, well, maybe maybe this would be, an, you know, a really wonderful gift uh, that we could create with Russian artists. And then also, I knew many artists. They were my friends. I had been writing about underground culture for the past 10 years and write, making films about it. Underground rock musicians, uh, the LGBTQ community, the um, uh, theater people. And I thought, wouldn't it be amazing if I could offer opportunities to some of these people that had been denied opportunities under communism? Because this is all happening just a few years after the collapse of the Soviet Union. So, you know, everybody really, there was really no free market yet. I mean, we, we in the West were all like, oh, tomorrow there's going to be a free market, you know. But it was really a very, very difficult time, especially for artists. Because um, under the Soviet Union, they 
you know, those who didn't have banned, didn't have their artwork banned, uh, had usually some sort of subsidized sustenance. And mm. now, you know, it, this there was nothing. So, so the idea of being able to build a team that would involve these people who I really loved and then meeting new people, you know, from other parts of um, the artistic community, it, it was like a, a, a daunting project, but also incredibly exciting. So one of your bosses uh, told you after this project was greenlit that getting an international version of Sesame Street off the ground in another country, which had happened in several other places up to this point, including Mexico, which we'll talk about here in just a second. Uh, but getting it started in another country was like a tripod with three legs. The first leg involved gauging interest and ability to produce such a children's show. The second leg is finding a worthwhile production partner. And the third is actually producing the series. Let's talk about that first leg for a second. Uh, that meant for you, when you arrived in Russia, Russia, dealing with that first challenge, which was get past the gatekeepers. Who exactly were the gatekeepers and how did you ultimately get past? Uh, it's, a, it, it's a very good question. I mean, and Russia is unique because Sesame Street already had a number of international co-productions, mostly in Europe and in Mexico, of course. And uh, usually the deals for the broadcast uh, by the nonprofit, by Sesame, uh, Sesame Workshop, um, was done with the state broadcaster. So the equivalent of our public television, I guess, except um, <clears throat> it's a slightly different structure. And in the case of Russia, they had no cable at that point. There was basically uh, one, two stations, you know, budding stations, but we had already had cable. Nickelodeon existed by that time for quite some time in the U.S. So um, when I was initially hired to explore uh, who would be our broadcast partner, my first reaction was, well, I really don't want to work with the state broadcaster, which is primarily uh, the communist run uh, television studio. And my idea was that I would create a independent entity so that we could hire all kinds of independent artists to come together. And then we would make the show and eventually sell it to um, the, the TV station. And the we did we did stick to that structure to some extent our team was an assembly of all kinds of independent people freelancers for the most part but we actually ended up doing the broadcast deal with the state broadcaster um so the process to getting there took another uh five years so we made the whole show before we had the broadcast partner um, and if you, you know, as you're alluding to, we made many broadcast deals and the first, uh, um, the advisors we had who were our confidants into what was going on in, in Russia's TV industry were some of the bravest men I had met who were uh, not afraid to take on a lot of the um, uh, communist bureaucrats who didn't want to give up power, not only inside the TV industry, but, you know, oligarchs running the uh, the um, new advertising industry, B 
because there was no advertising industry before 1991. So, you know, for your listeners, imagine that sentence. There was no advertising in the Soviet Union before 1991. Mm-hmm. Well, once they they opened uh, Pandora's box, oh, it was it was it was frightening because there was, there was a lot of money at that time because Western companies were coming in, flooding in to sell products in this newly opened post-communist market. And we were there with our puppet show, you know, walking around, (laughs) meeting people and proposing to put this on the air, obviously not having commercials in the body of the show because Sesame Street is a nonprofit. And so we don't do that. And we didn't do that on public television and didn't do that internationally. Uh, But we did recognize that, you know, we may have a very popular show on our hands uh, if we are able ever to get it off the ground. So the first people that we started working with, uh, one was Vlad Listev, who was, um, he uh, he hosted a talk show and also a Russian version of Jeopardy. He was a very versatile, brilliant man who was a friend of my business partner, Leonid Zagalski. So he quietly tried to help us and um, he was um, he worked in the same studio where we were uh, meeting with all these people and he was murdered uh, when he went when he left the studio one evening and uh, shot in front of his house. Incredibly tragic. Why was he murdered? Uh, nobody really knows to this day. There are 120 judicial files and it's still an unsolved case. Hmm. So. I mean, there are there were, you know, many, many rumors about it. And generally, people thought that it had something to do with a moratorium on advertising that he was instituting um, uh, shortly uh, before his death. And, you know, people in power knew about that. And he was trying to clean up the TV uh, industry because people were making so much money, but there wasn't enough money to pay for production. So he was trying to rectify that situation. But there are a number of other people who, you know, he wasn't afraid to take on people and fight corruption. Um, And uh, he is a much loved man by, um, you know, all over the former Soviet Union. So finding Russian funding to pair with the money coming in from the U.S. to help pay for this show was a challenge, to say the least. The first hope nearly died in a car bombing, which exposed to you guys that uh, you were about to take money from a gangster. Another failed attempt included a guy who considered himself the Russian sausage king. I'd love to meet that guy, at least for just a couple minutes. I'm, I'm not sure you want to meet him. <laughs> maybe just like watch him on a TV screen or something for a few minutes, uh, making his sausage. Eventually, you met a woman named Irina Borisova. Who was she and what impressed you about her during y'all's first meeting? Irina Barisova is how how that's pronounced. Thank Um, you. You're going to have to correct me throughout this uh, conversation because I'm going to get a lot of these pronunciations wrong, including whatever it was that Sesame Street was translated to in Russia. (laughs) Ulitsa Sezam. There you go. Uh, Yeah, but uh, you'll get it. And um, uh, Irina was uh, quite a character, uh, so stunning, so elegant, super smart, and warm but tough. 
at the same time. And of course, the idea of, you know, my counterpart would be a woman. I just had never thought that because Russia, especially in the TV industry, is so sexist and so patriarchal. And, you know, you it still it still is. I, I whenever I say this, I always say a caveat, which is that, you know, Russia also had policies that were so progressive already from 1920s related to women's rights. So it's it's a very schizophrenic country because, mm. you know, they have these rights, but they still want women to wear skirts. Mm. So, of course, Irina did wear skirts <laughs> and she looked lovely. Mm. And um, uh, I um, she was she was uh, just extremely passionate about this. She had an eight year old daughter. She told me, she said, I'm not doing mm. this. You know, I, I do have a company. I have one of the largest, uh, you know, advertising companies uh, and the only company run by a woman in in the form in the former Soviet Union. But uh, I'm doing this for my daughter. And um, I believe that our country needs this. And this show can make a difference. Hmm. So music is obviously a huge part of Sesame Street. Why was convincing the Russians to diversify the show's music such a tough subject? I would say um, that the, the, the obstacles that we faced in, in uh, creating original music for Ulitsa Sazam related a lot to um, the fact that it was new and different. And it involved um, uh, a generational battle between older, you know, people who had grown up in the Soviet Union and younger children who had also grown up in the Soviet Union, but had already had a great deal more freedom in the 1980s from Glasnost um, and had hot, different expectations. So when we assembled the first team, we had people that were from the TV station, uh, for the most part, the state-run TV station, TV professionals who had come from the old world. And the person who was selected to be the music director, Katya Komalkova, was a very accomplished um, uh, pianist and composer and very proud of her nation's music. Uh, you know, the, you know she, she said to us, well, why would we uh, have anything other than classical music in our shows uh, when we have such a renowned music tradition? Why don't we highlight something that's really wonderful about our past, especially when so much of our past is being challenged and destroyed and uh, trampled on? Let's hold this piece up. And it made sense. But also Sesame Street as a show is, as you said, known for its innovative, diverse uh, music. And, and also, you know, one of my main reasons for wanting to make this show in Russia was to, you know, essentially bring in people I knew, musician artists, you know, music artists who uh, I thought they were incredibly talented and they hadn't had opportunities in the past. So we were at real loggerheads. And um, and that went on for, you know, a couple months. Um, and I, I understood where she was coming from, because there are there is a wonderful um, Russian animation 
that is, you know, hand-drawn cell animation, absolutely artistically amazing. And a lot of it uses classical music and that's fine. Uh, you know, it's, 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 a, it's part of their tradition. So I understood where she was coming from and how what I was suggesting was, um, was different. What ultimately allowed for uh, some sort of agreement or some sort of meeting in the middle with regards to what the Russians were okay with on the show? Well, in the case of music, um, I was pretty dogged and I just wanted her to meet some of the, um, the uh, you know, formerly banned musicians. Hmm. Uh, I, I didn't know what was going to happen. And I, you know, what my, my, um, my colleague, um, and a very dear friend from the 1980s um, had had offered to speak with her. And he also had um, criticized me for not for for expecting things to change too fast and not really being sensitive to where she was coming from and what was her worldview. So when these two people met, Katya and Sasha, and they hit it off like a house on fire. They had children the same age. And also my friend had been classically, you know, trained as a classical musician originally. So they 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 just hit it off and were able to find common ground. And from then on, Katya became such an advocate of all the new musicians, younger, you know, older. Um, we had, we just had, uh, amazing music on the show it's it 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 surpassed any expectation i had for what it could be what a great earnest thought that your friend who obviously had a lot to gain by being included in this project offered up there something that may have in theory worked against him in trying to get you to see the other side but that, i mean that sort of input is incredibly valuable as you were working your way through something so new like that and really trying to figure out why somebody else may feel completely differently from what the vision is that you're trying to make happen. Yeah. I think the, uh, you know, the generosity that was felt on the, um, uh, you know, in the production office and on the set as our team uh, balloon to you know more than 400 artists hmm. was extraordinary and um, you know when the um, longtime Sesame Street veterans came to the set in Moscow uh, Lisa Simon who was one of the directors of Sesame Street and uh, Luis Santiero who's a, a writer of Sesame Street um, they would come to that set and they all said this set has the same feeling of the early days of Sesame Street, you know, when we were uh, working with Jim Henson and creating, you know, as we as we went along and everybody was working together and there was uh, really not as much, there was, well, there was no, there was very limited hierarchy, which is, I think, traditionally how a lot of women run companies, but when I was running the show, I really tried to do that. Everybody, I wanted everybody to feel that they could share their uh, opinions and that it was an inclusive environment. 
uh, and that we had at least half of the jobs were, you know, high, high uh, key jobs were filled by women, which we did. And that was uh, amazing, too. So eventually y'all are far enough along with this that the Russian production team travels to New York City to go through a sort of Sesame Street boot camp with those who put on the show in the U.S., really teaching them the ropes. I guess it's worth letting people know at this point that part of the plan for Russian Sesame Street involved original programming, but all, but original programming originating from Russia that's specific to the Russian audience, but part of it involved dubbing segments from the original show. Of course, that means the American kids who are acting in that episode would be seen in Russia. Why was the subject of African-American child actors such a point of contention for the Russians, and how was this ultimately resolved? When the um, the Russian team came to New York City and met with the head of research, uh, Dr. Valeria Lovelace, um, <clears throat> there was a discussion about uh, racism in America. And I think that the... Um, uh, the 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 creative team that came to the U.S. Uh, wasn't really seeing race in the same way that we see race. So they have something like 150 or I think 152 different nationalities across the former Soviet Union. And um, it is true that uh, people at that time would often uh, white Russians would use the terms, some people would, of uh, uh, Chornia, which means blacks, to describe Kazakhs or Chechens. And there was a great deal of racism in the Soviet Union, but at the same time, the concept of communism, you know, which was uh, brotherly socialist love and uplifting everybody and providing education for everybody, that, that was the the mantra of the ideology in, in the society for 70 years. Um, but I think that Dr. Lovelace was thinking about race in terms of uh, racism in America and the Russians, their concept of race, they didn't really use that word, but it was just nationalities, which relates to um, a regional area, basically. Um, so they were they were sort of talking at cross purposes. And um, uh, Dr. Lovelace, uh, this was during a period of time at the workshop when there was a theme each um, each season would have a new theme. And that particular uh, year, it was a focus on uh, addressing racism uh, in American society and how to um, try to um, uh, you know, create a greater understanding and, and greater harmony for young children relate, relating to race. So Dr. Lovelace was talking about that, but the reaction of the Russian team was like, well, we don't, we don't have any Blacks in our country. Because they, even though they use Black for Kazakh, she was talking about African-American Blacks. And so the linguistic differences uh, didn't allow the Russian team to connect with it. They thought she was just talking about something that had nothing to do with them. And um, there wasn't enough of, a, I think, advanced preparation on my part 
with the research team to try to say, oh, let's set, let's frame the discussion. So it also brings in the many nationalities in the former Soviet Union. And then let's get the Russian team to talk about that too. So, you know, this was a, I don't know, a, a one hour or, you know, one and a half hour discussion. So there were some things lost in translation, I would say. And um, when you ask about the resolution, um, this all changed when the um, the Russian creative team went with the uh, uh, director of research up to Harlem to participate in a research um, testing of Sesame Street programs, of the American programs. And I think for many of the Russians, this was the first time in their life they had ever been in the same room playing with black children. And it was a really moving experience seeing how, uh, you know, they, they bonded with the different kids and they were, each person was, you know, they set up a buddy system. And then the children were playing with uh, Mr. Potato Head and showing the Russians how to, how to um, build with it. And they'd never seen the toy before, you know. Um, and after this experience, somehow it became, uh, you know, a much broader discussion about how important it was for the show to be inclusive. So I, 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 in that case, I was really kind of holding back and stepping back and allowing the process to uh, take, take hold of people emotionally and have them be able to connect as human beings across cultures. And it was, you know, I think if you talk to my Russian colleagues now, for them, that day is probably their favorite day. Um, in the in the production process, you and the Sesame Street team were doing a good job of nudging before it was fashionable <laughs> to nudge. I think that uh, Sesame Street started, you know, long long ago, and they were the first. So, chapter twelve starts with this paragraph: "Quote." Sesame Street uses a proprietary research-based approach to creating children's television that was developed by the show's original creators. The cornerstone of this model is the curriculum workshop, which involves bringing child education experts together with TV professionals to develop specific educational goals that also reflect the culture and values in the countries where the show is being produced. You, Natasha, gathered Russian educators and academics at a Sesame Street workshop seminar to determine these things. What did they decide were the culture and values worth showcasing to Russian children? Well, this uh, this uh, curriculum seminar, uh, which is the cornerstone of, of every international co-production, was actually organized by the director of research, Dr. Anna Genina. And our creative team was part of that workshop because uh, we bring together education experts and uh, create the creative team, producing team. Um, and it was a uh, it was a very intense uh, three days with heated discussions about uh, values, and I would say one of the most poignant. Uh, points that was made by one of the educators um, who was doubtful about our ability to come up with 
ways to teach uh, the, you know, next generations about openness is he asked, he said, you know, you're tasking us with uh, coming up with uh, ideas, how to, what should we should teach children in the future to help them, you know, thrive in an open society. And we don't know what an open society looks like. So how are we going to do this? And then the American um, uh, uh, director of international research, Shari Cole said, encouraged him to stay, not to leave, because he was gonna leave. He just said, I, I'm not gonna stay. This is ridiculous. We'll never do this. And uh, she said, please just give it a chance. Um, and, uh, and he stayed. And by the end of the, the uh, curriculum seminar, he was absolutely shocked and, um, and pleased by the consensus that we did reach. Um, but before we got to that point, uh, there was a, a great deal of um, uh, discussion around all kinds of issues. You know, for example, uh, how do you teach children about markets? And um, I, you know, everybody was throwing around ideas. So I suggested, well, what about writing a scenario where uh, children run a lemonade stand? And, you know, that could teach um, counting and team building skills. And also about you know business to some extent for for little kids, and explained we do this in America. This is something that's very common. And um, the group just just looked at me you know with horror, like you know you can't you can't have children selling things on the street. <laughs> you know that's that's shameful. And uh, the only people that do that are criminals. And I I realized that you know I said this and I. I realized, oh yeah, that's true. Just a couple of years earlier, uh, you know, the only people selling stuff on the street were mafia. And if you did do that, you would basically be put in jail for speculation. Oh, I'm sorry. Let me turn this off. Mm. Um, so, uh, so that was uh, that was eye opening for me. And there were a number of um, areas, you know, conversations that we had. You know, another was about. Uh, inclusivity and as part of the process you know we were talking about gender gender issues all kinds of uh, progressive ideas uh that are part of an open society and when we showed a clip of a little boy in a wheelchair um which has a cute upbeat song in the background where he's uh, riding in his wheelchair flying a kite and there's the songs you know says me and my chair we go everywhere hmm. and um, then the the clip finished, and uh, one man stands up and says, uh, "You shouldn't show children uh, in a wheelchair on the TV show." And I thought, uh, "Well, why not?" You know, I mean, it to this totally. I did. What, this was unexpected. I mean, I didn't. I just did not think this would be. This one would be a problem. <laughs> and uh, so. Then um, someone else says uh, that um, you know you you don't you Americans you don't understand that we don't want to show children in wheelchairs on our TV show on our Sesame Street TV show because uh, most children will never ever get a wheelchair that the state of of health currently and the poverty situation that 
you know, these children are trapped in their beds and then they're going to see another child with a wheelchair on TV and they'll never get one. That'll just make them feel sad. Why not just not show it? So, you know, I, I was I thought that is a perspective I, you know, hadn't hadn't considered. And obviously, you know, all of these issues are not things that I really came in contact with making documentaries and being somebody on the outside, uh, you know, covering politics and economics and, uh, you know, even underground music. And so this whole experience of working uh, with a team and talking about children was such a deep dive into Russian culture that I never had. And I speak Russian. I had already been there 10 years. And yet I was having these eye-opening experiences that were, uh, you know, incredibly moving. Um, and, you know, the, the after this woman said that, then another woman uh, stood up and said, um, you know, I come from this town called, uh, this region called Chuvash that stretches from the Volga to Siberia. And we have many children with, uh, she said, we have many not normal children, which was the word that was used over and over again for disabled children, quote, unquote. And so uh, she said, you know, I work with these children every day and they long to play with normal children. Uh, they, they, you know, why don't we write scenarios where they're seen as, as a valuable part of society? Hmm. And, you know, let's, let's change the, this, let's change the way we see these children. And, you know, after she finished speaking, I looked around and, uh, the people that had spoken earlier about not including um, disabled children in the show were like shifting in their seats uncomfortably. And then some of the people had started, you could see that they were uh, crying. And I realized in that moment that I was losing it too. And that I too was like, this was, this was, you know, such a moment of transition to see this entire group of people, the entire, you know, it was like, it was like the whole place was opening up itself, like in a room, you could see the transition happening. And, you know, the, it was, I, I always say that Ludmila, the woman from Chuvash, the special needs teacher, that she was like an angel at, that had descended into the room and mesmerized everybody. And, um, and from then on, uh, you know, the discussion about uh, inclusivity changed as well. Hmm. Uh, so we had, you know, at the time of auditioning, we were looking for children from, uh, you know, all, uh, all from a very diverse group of children. I'm assuming that most people watching and listening right now can picture what the American Sesame Street neighborhood looks like, something that emulates a neighborhood that you could find in and around New York City. What were some of the most important details in putting together the set for the Russian Sesame Street neighborhood? Well, the uh, the U.S. Uh, neighborhood is is you know based on an urban urban setting, a Harlem setting. But all the international Sesame Street co-productions have a public place where people can gather, 
And so in Mexico, it's a plaza. In Norway, it's a train station. In South Africa, it's a um, marketplace. So we knew that we were looking for something that was, you know, some place that was going to be an open area that that neighbors could interact in and you could have a community. Um, but the set designer uh, had a real dilemma because she she wasn't sure what the set should reflect. You know, should it reflect uh, pre-revolutionary Russia? Should it reflect Russia's recent Soviet past? Or should it be something new that was completely unknown that, you know, maybe they couldn't even conceive of what it would be yet. Um, so that that was uh, frustrating to to her to try to figure that out. And it also had to be a set that would appeal to the entire former Soviet Union across 11 time zones, because that's where the show would be broadcast. So eventually the research director, Anna Genina, was very helpful with this. And she proposed a courtyard, a traditional, um, both pre-revolutionary and Soviet courtyard that is surrounded by apartment buildings, blocks of apartment buildings, whether they're neoclassical or Soviet, you know, prefab concrete that you see across Eastern Europe and, you know, in, in Soviet, in post countries. So uh, that was that was great. And then uh, the idea was that they would take this courtyard and um, and then make it a friendlier, kinder place. Mm. So um, that the, the other challenge was that the, the courtyard had to also be the set had to be realistic because Sesame Street's way of working is that the children should be in a real life environment not a fantastical environment with, uh, you know, where you could solve problems with magic and uh, fairy godmothers. And, you know, you should be, you should learn how to have a problem and solve that problem, you know, with your, your by yourself or with guidance from adults and model that. But the Russian uh, creative team said, well, if our courtyard is going to be realistic, then we should have a rusty car in it, garbage all over the place, there should be glass everywhere and neighbors should report on their neighbors to the KGB. So that was, <laughs> that was another challenge of how to make it, you know, uh, realistic, but also someplace you'd want your children to play. <laughs> um, but what, what they ended up, um, the group ended up creating uh, the set was, created by Masha Rabasova, who was a brilliant theater uh, set designer, was absolutely exquisite, down to a giant 40-foot oak tree and, uh, you know, houses that were traditional dachas, so wooden uh, country, country style, very modest homes, and the brick uh, architecture um, that is uh, uh, prevalent in pre-revolutionary Russia. And then the, um, the uh, set designer hand-painted a scrim, which, which a backdrop that went the full length of the studio. And it had um, uh, architectural elements from all different periods of uh, Soviet history and churches. So it looked like this, you know, kind of like a Where's Waldo, a Russian Where's Waldo of architecture. Mm -hmm. It was absolutely beautiful. Hmm. 
Why was casting the Russian child actor so damn sad? And what ultimately turned the tide here? Um, well, the, 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 um, the auditions for the show uh, are probably my favorite part of any production because I, I get to hear children sing and that's absolutely lovely. So when we went into the auditions, uh, which were uh, run by the chief director and the supervising producer, and they asked me to kind of stay in the background because they didn't want me to, they didn't want to have an American there. Uh, and they just said, why don't you just hang back? Because most of these families, you know, really have never met an American in their life. So let's just keep it calm here. And so, um, uh, when they, when the children, uh, the children were separated and they came in one at a time. So they didn't hear what the other children were singing. And when the first, uh, uh, little boy came in, um, he sang a, a world war II song, uh, you know, the planet is burning. He drops to an alto the uh the fire is you know whatever <laughs> i can't remember the, the lyrics now but it was so morose and i thought okay this is really weird for a children's comedy show but you know <laughs> what the hell <laughs> so then then uh the director you know tells him good job and he leaves and then the next child comes in a little girl with you know blonde uh pigtails and blue eyes and she she uh, sings with her little soprano voice a song called Katusha, which is all about uh, uh, a um, uh, a woman uh, who's singing about her her loved one who's gone off to the front. And this went on for the for the for the rest of the morning with children coming in and singing these you know morose songs about death, loss, and war. And I, I just thought, wow, there, this is, this is not what I expected. You know, I expected like the itsy bitsy spider or old McDonald's have a farm. And so at lunchtime, when I left with the uh, director, I was, I was like, what, what's going on here? Hello, I, I don't understand. And uh, and he, he just looked confused. And he said, what, what are you talking about? Uh, these are uh, songs that bring our children comfort. They sing these songs with their grandmothers and, you know, you, you call them sad and morose, but you have to think of them as lyrical and poetic. And, um, you know, our children read poetry from a young age with the, their grandmothers and they are used to sadness in their music and in their lives. So, you know, that that was very sobering. And in the context of, you know, what's going on today in uh, in Russia and in Ukraine, you know, I, I take this to heart and I think about how, uh, you know, what what we all experienced together in Russia in the 1990s uh, reflects uh, values that are still uh, present today and impacting their own society and the world. Hmm. The final challenge that we're going to discuss has to do with the making of the Russian Muppets themselves. Why was something as seemingly trivial as color, even a sticking point in this regard? 
Well, let's see. We had uh, the dis discussion about the development of the Muppets went on for, I think, about four or five months. It took, and I mean, it, it was brought up again and again throughout this book. And there was finally a, a resolve, I want to say, within the last like 60 to 70 pages. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, well, um, the Russians are a, um, uh, a very uh, artistic people with, um, uh, you know, wonderful ideas. And I say it just took a long time to to figure out, you know, how how we were going to come up with the design for the new three Slavic Muppets that would reflect everything that they hoped their Muppets would reflect. And perhaps one of the challenges was that, you know, everybody had such high expectations for the show and what it could achieve. And that really, uh, you know, set a high bar so that, you know, it was very hard to make everybody happy, but we we really wanted to try. So that's that's why it took so long. But in the process, the the you know initially the team didn't want the Muppets at all. They wanted to use their own hard wooden puppets. And um, the uh, first head writer said, uh, "You know we have our own puppet tradition dating back to the 16th century, and we don't need your Muppets." Um, and other in in the book, I go into this in great detail because uh, a lot of this material. I had um, chronicled on videotape because I just couldn't believe what people were saying. You know, they wanted to use a scientific, they had scientific reasons why the Muppets were not Russian compared to their own puppets. And I, I won't get into it now, but it was fascinating. And then, and then on top of that, the, um, you know, when it got to coming up with the idea about the color for the Muppets, in one writer's meeting, um, the the puppet, uh, one of the writers said, well, the puppet can't be blue because blue means golubuy uh, in Russian, and that means gay. And people will think the puppet's gay. And, you know, the the, and... the visiting, the, the visiting as if that's something bad, you know, and then the, the uh, head writer who was over visiting from the American show, Luis Santiero, he just quickly turns around and says, uh, well, uh, you know that Muppets don't really uh, have sex. <laughs> they don't, and, yeah. And a sexual identity or something. They don't have biological sex. They're Muppets. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, he 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 won a lot of points from the younger writers for taking that <laughs> older writer down who was just like saying ridiculous, you know, just awful stuff. But but then the there was there's a fascinating discussion in the book about choosing the colors of the three muppets once the sign was uh pretty much established and you know it wasn't like um like the situation that happened in mexico when i was the producer there where the wife of the um the executive the mexican executive producer walked in and said i think you know the muppet character should be pink and then the character was pink and that was it. <laughs> and in this case, the the entire team sat down and had to consult the um, uh, hundred year old treatise by Vasily Kandinsky, the famous artist who had written on the theory of color and how 
emotions carry, you know, different colors carry different emotions. And we had to analyze all of this to make sure that the puppets would have the right colors in order for children to feel the right emotions associated with those puppets. So I love this. I mean, I have to say, this is why I love working in Russia for so many years. And I stayed there for so many years. The level of abstraction and poetry is, is, is so seductive in this culture. And uh, yes, they, they did. They consulted Kandinsky to come up with their colors for their Muppets. So you and your team maneuver through all the things we've just talked about and things that you have no control over from tragic murders to the Russian military overtaking your business offices while you were on a mini honeymoon, uh, forcing you to uh, shorten that mini honeymoon that much more. By the way, love the romantic story that was woven within these pages, including the engagement story. At one point, uh, you while pregnant had to sneak money into Russia in your bra there is a presidential election going on during this time, but ultimately you do get to the finish line. And that first episode airs in uh, October of 1996, I believe. What yes. was it like getting to that point? I think none of us knew if we would ever, ever succeed at any point. You know, we, we, uh, we thought the program, the production would be shut down almost every month. And, you know, as you've seen in the book, you've mentioned some of the obstacles. It was just an, a complete roller coaster ride and often terrifying because of the violence in the country. So, you know, when, when finally, uh, it, you know, the, the broadcast deal came through, which, you know, thanks with the help of an incredible team at Sesame Street in, in the U.S. and the Russian uh, broadcasters who all came together to set up some sort of very complex interlocking deal. Um, you know, I, I was, I was already very emotional because I had just given birth, but, but really I, I cried. I mean, it was unbelievable. And, you know, to be able to share that with the team of people that had, uh, sacrificed so much and worked so hard and with such passion to bring Ulitsa Sazam to the post-Soviet Union, to millions of children, you know, it was an incredible feeling. Should the show very, oh, go ahead. No, I was going to say I'm very, very proud of, of what we all achieved together. So the show ends up running from 1996 to 2010. This is my last question, by the way. What is the lasting legacy of that show? I have to say that uh, as I watch the, uh, you know, Russian young people in their late 20s and 30s now marching out of Russia and opposing the war, I think about how those are children who grew up on Ulitsa Sazam. And I also think about on the other side in Ukraine, the same age group, the same cohort that's fighting for freedom and self-determination now, that they too are children of Ulitsa Sazam. And I think that's the legacy of our show in uh, working with this team of uh, Moscow artists to bring idealistic values to a country. And I know one day this war will end and the Russians who left will come back 
and I hope there will be peace in Ukraine. Well put. She is Natasha Lance Rogoff. The new book is an excellent one. It's called Muppets in Moscow, the unexpected crazy true story of making Sesame Street in Russia. Natasha, thank you so much for the time today, and thank you so much for this book. Thank you so much, Trey. I really enjoyed talking with you. You asked great questions. It was it was really fun. Thank you. Pleasure's all Take mine. Care. Hopefully this isn't the last time. Look forward to it. Thanks to Gentleman Jesus for the intro and outro music. Hear more of his work at GentlemanJesus.com. And thanks to you for hanging out. You can watch, listen, learn, and connect for free at BooksOnPod.com. For Books on Pod, I'm Trey Elling. Good day. <laughs>